My sleep was shallow, and I awakened before the alarm clock was due to ring. The luminous green hands of the clock horizontally bisected the dial a quarter to three. Ticking sounded loud in this abnormal silence. The propane had run out during the night, and the house was very cold. When I turned on the small bedside lamp, I could see my breath emerge in pale clouds of vapor. Jan was annoyed by the light. She grimaced, moaned a soft, bubbly complaint, and turned over. The window was frosted into a white, fern jungle. I held my palm against the frost until a spot melted, then leaned close and looked outside. It was a hushed and frozen night, all blacks and grays and whites, plains and angles, nature in a geometrical mood. There did not seem to be any wind now, and it had finally stopped snowing. I looked up through the tangle of cottonwood branches, but I could not see the moon or the stars. The snow seemed to possess its own illumination. I went into the living room and got dressed, first the suit of woolen underwear, then long cotton stockings, and over them heavy woolen stockings that came above my knees, garters, and then the wool knickers, stitched and patched and worn smooth after all the years. Now the knee-length gaiters, a loose cashmere sweater with holes in the elbows, a wool shirt, and finally, my down jacket. I sat and laced my boots. They had been resoled twice, and the leather uppers were cracked and scuffed, but the boots were warm and fit me like a second skin. I stood up. I was warm now, though perhaps later no amount of clothing could defeat the cold. My skis and the bamboo poles were leaning against the wall. The poles were made of good quality Tonkin cane. The skis were a compromise between the very light and fragile Nordic touring skis and the heavier, stronger ski mountaineering type. They were 57 millimeters wide, with the hickory sole, linea stone edges, and the Silvetta Sass Fay binding. Technically, the equipment was the property of the U.S. Forest Service. In every other way but technically, they were mine. I used them to go far back in the mountains to measure the depth and moisture content of the snow at various points in the Wolf Basin watershed. It was good winter duty. Better, anyway, than sitting at a desk in an overheated office or giving Smokey the Bear talks to grammar school students. My other gear was spread out over the floor. There was my big rucksack, once a smoky gray and now stained to a mottled brown, a down sleeping bag, the little Savea stove, kettles, fuel, water bottles, food, additional clothing, odds and ends. I went into the kitchen and placed a pot of coffee on the electric stove. While the water was heating, I went outside for some piton logs. It was a night of cold and menace. The cold was light, dry, intense. It was so cold that it seemed the opposite, as dry ice is so cold in the hand that it burns. My teeth and lungs ached, my breath steamed. The snow was granular in this cold, like sand, and made a sound like sand being compressed underfoot. The white aspens in the darker cottonwoods were crucified against a septic sky. Nothing, not even the hoot of an owl, 
or the howl of a dog, challenged the brittle, cold silence. Something about this night stabbed into a primitive part of the mind. Fear was the natural response. There was a mercury thermometer above the woodpile, 27 degrees below zero. We were at 8,500 feet, roughly figuring a temperature drop of three degrees for each thousand feet of altitude. It was now around 40 degrees below zero in the cirque beneath Mount Wolf. The wind would roar and scream like jet engines up there. That wind could kill you in a couple of hours. I hoped the college kids had been lucky and found the Columbine cabin during the storm. They were too green to survive without good shelter. I hoped they had found the cabin, and I hoped equally that Ralph Brace had not.